0: I want you to take your copy of God's Word and turn in it with me, the Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 2. I brought along with me this morning a little, a little illustration of something, and I wonder if you can identify with it. Hebrews chapter 2, we'll be there in a moment. I found this this morning. You see what that is? Rubber band. Zachary and Josiah know what it is. This morning I came around the corner and I went like that. And if I came up to you and did that with my rubber band, what would you do? You would do what they did. They would, you would flinch first. I think. I pointed at Zach first, he flinched, and when I didn't shoot it at him, I pointed it at Josiah, and jo- Josiah didn't flinch quite as much because he realized I didn't shoot it at Zach. I probably wasn't going to shoot it at him. It's natural, isn't it? Little rubber band, I, I, I aim it at you and you you flinch, right? Well, that's, we call that instinct, Right? And then after I shoot at you, of course, you run and grab it and you try to shoot it back at me. That also is instinct. You can't help yourself with that either. Uh, how about the little boy who comes up with you, uh, comes up to you with a, a squirt gun filled with water, and aims it at you? What do you do? You you run away screaming like a little girl, right? <laughs> you say, "Don't shoot me! Don't shoot me!" You can't help yourself. That's That's instinctive, and no offense to little girls intended. (laughs) Likewise, we all instinctively fear death. Everyone fears death. Death is close to home today, isn't it? It's difficult when someone dies. It's not intended to be easy. It's it's intended for us to take seriously. Everyone fears death. Some try to mask their fear with some kind of courage that they can muster up of their own. (laughs) sometimes some try to pretend that they don't fear death everyone fears death everyone fears death some try to act like they don't but everyone ultimately at heart fears dying i heard it said of a a a very respected theologian in our day that um he said he said um I'm not afraid of death. I'm afraid of dying. (laughs) You know what I mean? You see, being afraid of death or being afraid of dying is true of every person on this earth unless, unless you know Jesus. But even if you know Jesus, you may be like that prominent theologian who says, I'm not afraid of death. I'm afraid of dying. (laughs) You know what he means? None of us wants to die a painful death, right? Nobody nobody wants to, to go through the excruciating, sometimes excruciating pain of death, sometimes, right? Nobody. The fact of death is a serious call to take Jesus seriously. To believe in Jesus for salvation from your sins and for the gift of new life in Christ, eternal life in Christ is a serious call to take Jesus seriously. We've been seeking to answer the question, why was it fitting that Christ should suffer and die? Why does God's word say that it was fitting that he suffered? In human terms it doesn't make any sense, but God doesn't think in human terms, praise God. Why was it fitting? Or says verse 10, it it says that it was fitting. Why was it fitting that Christ should suffer and die? We continue to answer that question this morning. There are more answers for us in the text of Hebrews chapter 2, as we read verses 14 through 18 this morning, we're going to see that part of the answer is that it was fitting that Jesus suffer and die so that he might deliver, deliver all who put their trust in him from the fear of death and deal a death blow, defeating death. Look at verse 14, Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14. Follow along in your copy of God's Word at the end of the chapter. Since, therefore, the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil to make propitiation for the sins of the people, for because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Now what we're seeing here in these final verses of chapter 2 is that Jesus, by taking on human flesh, and dying for our sins, he destroyed Satan. He destroyed death, and he delivered believers from the stronghold we call death, the stranglehold that death has on us. But how did Jesus accomplish this? We keep ask, asking that question, and chapter 2 keeps answering that question again and again. How? How does Jesus accomplish this? We heard back in verse 10 last week that it was fitting that Jesus Christ suffer and die so that he might become the founder the captain of our salvation, the founder of the believer's salvation, that he become the pioneer, that he open up a new territory, and now he leads all who put their faith in him into that new territory. But he had to suffer to accomplish that. He had to suffer. He had to die to accomplish all of that. There there was no other way. Now, why is that? Note verse 14 again. Would you look at verse 14 when it says, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood. Why was it Jesus had to suffer and die? Well, there's a problem that's introduced in verse 14. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood. And you can identify that that's a problem, don't you think? That that we have flesh and blood. You see, the language at the beginning of verse 14 tells us that the writer is kind of coming to a conclusion here. And he says, since therefore, he says he's pointing back to all that he's been saying, making it very clear that Jesus is greater, that Jesus is far superior to everyone and everything, and certainly far superior to the, even the angels. Because some would say, well, they have power, they, you know, they, they have spirit, they move wherever they wish. No, Jesus is superior to the angels too. And he concludes that line of thought in this way, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood. Who are the children? That's believers. He's talking about believers in Jesus Christ. That's believers. This is all those who put their faith in Christ and become a child of God or, as we saw last week, a brother to Jesus or a sister or brother, okay? Because when it talks about brother, it means male or female, all those who put their faith in Christ, brothers of Jesus Christ, That's what we heard last time. So the idea here in verse 14 is that since God's children are flesh and blood, that's us if you're a follower of Christ, you're one of God's children, and you're like everybody else on earth, you bleed when you're cut, right? When you fall, sometimes you break bones. You have things that are ailing on you, and the older that we get, the more we feel it, right? My kids like to make fun of me sometimes about those kinds of things. And so it's my, my goal in life to, to try to stay healthy so I can school them that I'm still strong, that I'm still able, you know, and things like that. But, but I, I, don't, I don't care how hard I try, I'm wasting away, right? As hard as I try, I cannot be 13 again. I cannot be 15 again. I can't be 21 again. I can't be 33 again, right? Why? We have flesh and blood. So the idea here in verse 14 is that since God's children are flesh and blood, since they're human, right, since they suffer, since they feel pain, anguish, sorrow, grief, and they experience death, Jesus also had to become human. God had to become human flesh. That's Jesus Christ. Verse 14 says, he himself likewise partook of the same things. There's a lot of stuff in same things. Same things. There's a lot there. Jesus partook of the same things. That is, by becoming a little lower than, than the angels, by taking on human flesh for a little while, for those 33 years that he lived on this earth in human flesh, he experienced all All that mankind experiences, he fully experienced temptation, yet he did not sin. And that's about the only difference. He experienced everything we experience short of sinning. Verse 18 says, For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Jesus also fully experienced hunger, fatigue and pain and sorrow and grief and the range of all human emotions frustrations and was sarcastic at times you know and things but never but never in a sinful way all of that he experienced short of sin it says hebrews 4:15 for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are oh are right we are being tempted the sin yet it says yet without sin that's Jesus he's experienced it all yet without sin and we ought to praise God for that because if it were not for that little reminder he could not be our Savior yet without sin so verse 14 says in the text of Hebrews 2 he himself likewise partook of the same things And as Charles Spurgeon says, this is a wonderful truth, says Spurgeon, and I agree with him, a wonderful truth. Note, Spurgeon, we know what it is to be partakers of flesh and blood. We often wish that we did not. (laughs) Amen. It is the flesh that drags us down. It is the flesh that brings us a thousand sorrows. I have a converted soul, but an unconverted body. Christ has healed my soul, but he has left my body still to a large extent in bondage, and therefore it has still to suffer, but the Lord will redeem even that. The redemption of the body is the adoption, and that is to come at the day of the resurrection. But think of Christ, who was a partaker of the eternal Godhead, condescending to make himself a partaker of flesh and blood the Godhead, linked with materialism, the infinite and infant, the eternal prepared to die and actually dying. Oh, wondrous mystery, this union of deity with humanity in the person of Christ Jesus, our Lord. And I say, Amen. Spurgeon is right. What a wondrous mystery. What a wonderful truth. So verse 14 says that Jesus partook of the same things. And that includes death. Jesus' death, in fact, is the last thought of verse 9. If you go back to verse 9 and just glance at the last few words of verse 9, you realize the last thought of verse 9 is death. And that becomes the emphasis for the rest of chapter 2. Jesus' death, the emphasis of the rest of chapter 2. Now, of course, some would say that Jesus' death means he failed. How could you say, some would say, how could you say that Jesus is God in human flesh, come to earth, God, a man, and then die? How's that not a failure? Well, the Word says it's not a failure. God says it's not a failure. What we're seeing here in these closing verses of chapter 2 is that through death... Jesus destroyed the one who has the power of death, the devil. That's the rest of verse 14. What a wonderful truth that is that Jesus, that through death, Jesus destroyed the one who has the power of death, the devil. But again, we ask, why? Why was all this necessary? It was necessary because mankind has a serious problem. It's seen in verse 15. Verse 15 says, look at it again, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. There it is. That's our problem. The fear of death and its result. Lifelong slavery Now, you might say, who's subject to the lifelong slavery because of the fear of death? That's everyone, everyone in human flesh. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, right? Romans 3.23 and Romans 6.23. For the wages of sin is what? Death. But, thank the Lord for that three-letter word in the middle of that verse, Romans 6.23, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Praise the Lord. And we would all be without hope because because of this if it weren't for the word deliver in verse 15. Go back and look at verse 15 again. And deliver, deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. The purpose for which Jesus must die? To deliver. To deliver people from bondage. To deliver all those who put their faith in him. Jesus' death means all who put their trust in him are delivered. It's as if, though you still are in a human body, it's as if you're, you're delivered to eternal destiny. You're there. You're home. Yeah, we still struggle in human flesh, but it's done. Jesus Christ paid the price for our sins, and he delivers all from the fear of death and the slavery that results from that fear. Jesus destroys death and delivers to new life in him. Destroy and deliver. I love those two words in this passage. Remember those if you remember nothing else. Jesus destroys death, and the one who has the power of death, and he destroys the fear of death, and he delivers. He delivers all those who put their faith in in him. So when verse 14 says that Jesus himself likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, it means that Jesus' destruction of the devil results in freedom from lifelong slavery for all who believe, and only for those who believe in Jesus Christ. Jesus delivers all who believe in him from the lifelong slavery to sin. Now when we see here that Jesus destroys the devil, you might think, wait a minute, don't you keep telling us that the devil is active? Don't you keep telling us that we have a, a fierce foe who prowls about like a roaring lion? Yes, the scriptures say that. Both are true. Both of these truths are true. But when the When the writer says here, we see here that Jesus destroys the devil. The writer did not mean that the devil is gone or rendered powerless or inoperative, in, in the original language, the word that was used here that's translated for our English minds, our English reading, is, is destroy here, meant that Satan's power over those whom Jesus redeems has been destroyed. Satan's power over those whom Jesus redeems has been destroyed. Satan cannot have power over the believer. That's being delivered from the fear of death, and that's why all who put their faith in Christ should not fear death, though we might be a bit afraid of dying because we don't know how we're going to die, right? No fear of death. As one commentator writes, in speaking of the devil as wielding the power of death, the writer meant that Satan uses people's fear of death to enslave them to his will. Often people make wrong moral choices out of their intense desire for self-preservation the readers were reminded that they were no longer subject to such slavery and that they could face death with the same confidence in God their captain, their founder, had. And that's true for all who put their trust in Christ still today. It's true for all of us who put our, our faith in Christ. As John MacArthur says this, the only way to destroy Satan was to rob him of his weapon, death. Physical death, spiritual death, eternal death. Satan knew that God required death for us because of sin, right? We know that. We just heard it in Romans. Death had become the most certain fact of life. Satan knew that men, if they remained as they were, would die and go out of God's presence into hell forever. Satan wants to hold on to men until they die because once they are dead, the opportunity for salvation is gone forever. Men cannot escape after death. So God had to wrest from Satan the power of death, and for just that purpose, Jesus came. Satan's weapon is extremely powerful, but God has a weapon even more powerful, eternal life. And with it, Jesus destroyed death. The resurrection of Jesus Christ provides the believer with eternal life. It is the only thing that could ever have done it. Death is the power of Satan's dominion, and when Jesus shattered Satan's power, he also shattered his dominion. So please note something here. Note that what we're hearing here in the text of God's Word is a very clear, very powerful reminder to all right now that if there are any here today who have not trusted in Jesus Christ, who have not put your faith in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and for salvation and for new life in Christ, that your only hope of being delivered from the consequences of your sin is to do that, to trust in Him today. And you can do it right now, right where you sit, that you can pray and ask God to forgive your sins because you believe in His Son. And it's done. If you do not, put your faith in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, you will remain captive until you do. And you could remain captive to Satan until it's too late. And if you die without Christ, Satan has won. Death is all Satan has. And if you wait too long, one day it could be too late. None of us would have come here this morning and said, I expected a 17-year-old to to die yesterday. I expected None of us expect a 17-year-old to die, right? Let that be a reminder to us. Let it be a serious reminder to all who have not put their faith in Christ. You don't know how much longer you will walk on the face of the earth. I don't like using scare tactics. (laughs) I'm not suggesting that You have only a few moments left, but you don't know that you don't. Believe in Jesus Christ. Trust in Him. He has paid the price for your sins. It's finished. It's done. Trust in Him. And He forgives you and gives you new life. And He dwells you through the presence of the Holy Spirit and gives you His Word to guide you Praise God. There is nothing better. If you choose to ignore this truth, you could choose to ignore this truth until it's far too late and you've waited too long. But it doesn't have to be so because Jesus came to destroy and deliver, right? So put your faith in him today. Even now, and you too will be delivered. You will be redeemed and made a child of God. This isn't just for unbelievers, okay? The writer of Hebrews is is sounding the wake-up call to believers, not to do what? Verse 1, chapter 2, don't drift, which is possibly a natural thing for us to do if we're not diligent. And so the writer of Hebrews is sending a clear wake-up call to believers not to drift. Don't drift from the faith. Don't drift from the things that were delivered to you. Don't drift from the things that you heard, the proclamation of truth. Don't drift from the truth of God's Word. Don't drift in your faith since Jesus came to deliver you from your former lives of sin. If you're a follower of Christ... James is saying, look how serious this is. Look what Jesus Christ accomplished. Look what he's done. Look what he's made available to you. Do not drift from this. Stay on the narrow path. Stay in God's Word. Keep praying. Keep living by faith until God calls you home or raptures you home. Whichever comes first. I know which one I want, but, because I'm afraid to die, right? Now note verse 16 again. And this is another reminder of why Jesus had to take on human flesh and why he had to suffer and die. It's another reminder here. It's just like reminder after truth after truth in in chapter 2 of why Jesus had to die. Verse 16, For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. That's clear that it's not angels. That's what the the writer has been challenging throughout chapters 1 and 2. It's not angels that Jesus came to help. For one thing, they don't need help. <laughs> okay, they're ministering spirits. They don't have bodies that die. They serve and worship Jesus Christ, not the other way around. They, do, they, they serve at his beck and call. They, they're ministering spirits for the sake of the saints, that is, those who trust in Christ. They're ministering spirits. They worship and serve Christ. So it wasn't the angels, but it's the offspring of Abraham who Jesus came to help. Now, who's that? We're not talking about some Old Testament believers here. The idea that the author is trying to make, and this is inspired by the Holy Spirit. We don't know the human author, but we know that this is God's word given by God. And the the point that God is making here in the text is that that it's people Jesus came to save. It's people, humankind, mankind. The idea, the offspring of Abraham, whom Jesus came to help, First of all, the writer's making it clear he's not speaking of angels, he's speaking of mankind, people, not angels. And secondly, he's pointing to believers, to believers. It's about believers. And the point is that Jesus came not for the sake of angels, but for the sake of humankind and those who put their trust in him, those who believe in him, those he saves. That's why he had to take on human flesh, and that's why he had to suffer and die. It is not the the angels that, that need saving. It's mankind, it's people in flesh who need saving. It's people who deal with sin every day who need saving. It's people who fear death and dying who need saving. It's people who live in human flesh who are trapped and enslaved to the fear of death. Therefore, says verse 17, therefore, he had to be made like his brothers, in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Why did Jesus have to suffer and die? Why take on human flesh? Because if he had not, he would not have become our merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God whom we desperately needed. As another commentator says of Jesus, our merciful and faithful high priest uh, talks about this passage, our merciful and high priest who knows personally our sorrows and griefs. One commentator says, an acquaintance with our sorrows and miseries so inclines Christ to compassion that he is constant in imploring God's aid for us. That's a precious reminder of a powerful biblical truth The Lord Jesus Christ intercedes for us. Jesus goes to God on our behalf. Jesus, God in human flesh, come to earth, right? Born a baby, lived a sinless life, then suffered and was crucified and died and was buried, but raised a new life, right? And he ascends, and what do we know? That after he ascends, he goes and he's where? He's at the right hand of the Father. He's constantly interceding for the saints. I love what this, this theologian says that he is constant in imploring God's aid for us. Praise God. that Jesus hasn't left us, right? He sent his Holy Spirit to live in us. We have God the Spirit dwelling in all who believe, and then Jesus Christ interceding at the right hand of the Father. It doesn't get any better than that. You have no greater advocate than Jesus Christ. We need someone to make propitiation also. That's what we see here in the text. We needed someone to make propitiation for our sins. Note the end of verse 17, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Any of you use that word this week? (laughs) Just me. That sounds like a hard word, propitiation, but it is a good word. It is a wonderfully good word when applied to the Lord Jesus Christ. It's one that I'm glad that is left here. Some translators take it out and, 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 and change it into something that may be a little bit easier to understand at first glance. But this is one of those words that when you come to it in the text, you have to go get your dictionary, right, and figure it out. What does this mean? It's a good word, and it's one I'm glad that's here because it is one that demands a definition since it isn't one we hear very often. When Jesus makes propitiation, for the sins of the people, it means that His sacrifice for sins satisfies the just wrath of God. Satisfies fully the just wrath of God because God's just wrath is satisfied in the sacrifice of His Son. Because His wrath is poured out for the sins of the world on His Son. Jesus bore the punishment for the sins of mankind. And that satisfies God's just and righteous wrath. We call it just and righteous because because God's wrath is deserved because we're all sinners, right? We all deserve death. We all deserve punishment for, for our sins. Jesus took it. In other words, This truth about Jesus making propitiation for the sins of the people means that he got what we deserved for our sins. He got what we deserve for our sins. And we get what he deserved for his sinlessness. Think of that. Jesus' sinlessness. If you could think of, we would say, well, you've been a really good person, right? Sinless? We we say to our children when they do good things, Good boy, you know, we like that. Great, thank you, thank you for for doing it. I'm really happy to see that you took initiative and, and did that act of obedience. We praise, you know, people for doing good things. What about someone who's sinless? What does he deserve? Well, our Lord Jesus Christ deserves all the honor and glory and praise and worship that we can give and more. And propitiation means that he got what we deserve for our sins and we get what he deserves for his sinlessness. It means that Jesus was punished for the sins of our lives and all who trust in him are shown mercy on account of his sinless life. And because of this, note verse 18, for because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are Being tempted. Just think of it. Through faith in Christ, all who trust in Christ are not alone in this life to deal with temptation to sin on our own. We have a merciful and faithful high priest who, in the service of God, made propitiation for our sins. He satisfied God's just wrath on us. And because he also suffered dearly when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Again, just think of it. what kind of suffering did Christ experience when tempted? You might think that that's a strange thing to say. How did he suffer when tempted? We can't quite fathom that because we give in to temptation too soon. We don't know often what it is to be uh, to be suffering in the midst of temptation because we give in. We quickly give in to temptation. He never did. Jesus never gave in to temptation. Temptation to sin was was likely ongoing and great. And he never gave in. And he suffered for it. Now, does that tell you don't don't suffer in temptation, just give in quickly so you don't suffer? Oh, no. Oh, no. God's grace and God's mercy are far greater than the temporary temptation Minor joys of sin that quickly are fleeting and quickly are gone, and then you realize how, how much you've grieved a holy God and how much it hurts your life when you sin. God's joy is greater than the minuscule joy of sin, the passing and fleeting joy of sin. What kind of suffering did Christ experience when tempted? He he suffered to the very end without sin, without caving to the temptation of sin. He withstood the temptation without sin, but we often choose to sin far too quickly to know what it is to suffer temptation. And we miss the joy and the blessings that God would give if we would remain remain obedient to God and say no to sin, as Jesus did. And that makes Him the only one capable of helping us say no to sin when we are tempted. We have His help. We must rely on His Word. We must rely on His power as, as He works in us through the work of the Holy Spirit, helping us say no to sin. Keep saying no to sin, right? Do not drift, says the writer of Hebrews. And that is why you can and should put your faith in Christ because He can help you live this life. If you are not a believer, then trust in Christ and be saved. And those who are believers, you can keep looking to Christ because it's through the finished work of Christ which, which God's word promises. Listen to this in 1 Corinthians 10.13, that, that we can overcome temptation and sin. Here's, here's the passage, 1 Corinthians 10.13. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. Now, what did we just hear from Hebrews? That Jesus, Jesus experienced everything we experience. So this is true of him. That, that phrase is true of Jesus. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man and Jesus. God is faithful. And he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Faith in Jesus Christ and obedience to God's word is your way of escape. Trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. Right? We sing that little song. It's a biblical truth. Faith in Jesus Christ and obedience to God's word is your way of escape. And with the help of the Holy Spirit, Jesus helps you because he knows what you're going through. He knows the temptation, even greater than you do, because he bore the temptation of sin and suffered for it all the way to his death. And when he died, he conquered sin and death and hell and the grave and raised a new life. Praise God that he sent his son and that he took on flesh, and that he came to save us from our sins, destroying death and delivering from death all who believe in him. Praise God. Let's pray. Precious Heavenly Father, we do praise you. We praise you that you are a righteous and holy and just God, and that in your mercy you sent your son Jesus Christ to die but not only to die, to go through all that went before that, to suffer dearly, suffer temptation to sin and yet without sin, and suffer grief and sorrow and pain and hunger and thirst and difficulty. He knows what we face. He's been through it all and yet without sin, and we praise you for sending your sinless Son that he is the spotless lamb who sacrificed for our sins, that that we might put our faith in him and be saved eternally, forgiven, made righteous in Christ. O oh Lord, help us to live in the power of that truth. May all your people realize what what glorious gifts you have given us to live in the power of that truth. And I pray that you would help us to be people who take great courage and comfort from your word of truth and that we would never, never quit reminding ourselves that our faith is in Christ, in the one who finished the work of paying for our sins. And you have given us your Holy Spirit that we might face the temptation of sin with the ability to say, no, no, I will not dishonor my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I will not take the Lord with me through this sin. I will I will say no, because he who is in me is greater than he who is in the world. And so, Lord, help your people, help your children to submit to you, help your children to trust you, help them them to have faith, and help them to, to know what obedience is through the trials and suffering of temptation, knowing that the joy of obedience is far greater. And God, I pray for unbelievers this morning. Open their eyes. Open their hearts. Don't let there remain a stony hedge of disbelief. Tear it down, Lord. Help them to see Jesus with the eyes of faith. Help them to trust in him, believe in him, that they might be saved and forgiven their sins and given new life in Christ. For it's in Jesus' name we praise you and we pray. Amen.